Hi everybody and welcome to the continuing epic commentary for the extended cut of the Two Towers. I'm Peter Jackson. And I'm Fran Walsh. And I'm Philippa Boyens. The first thing we can talk about is the New Line logo because what uh, people won't realise is that the logo that New Line gave us was quite scratched and jumpy and old and so we actually put it through Weta, the uh, digital effects facility, and we cleaned it up and stabilised it and sharpened it and gave it back to New Line as a special little present. So I don't know whether they even knew about it. Did we build them? <laughs> we should build them now. It was interesting to figure out how to start this film because the studio were quite insistent for a long time that we have a prologue, the same as the first film. They wanted Kate Blanchett, in actual fact, to give us a, a sort of a backstory of what's happened so far in this movie, you know, The Fellowship of the Ring, and to set us up. And we resisted doing that, didn't we? Yes, yes. It was ironic, really, because they, they didn't like the idea of Kate Blanchett doing the prologue in the first film, in Fellowship. It was something we <laughs> were keen on, but they weren't. And, and then it flipped around the other way. Yes, and then in this one, they, um, they decided that it was a good device, but we sort of moved on from there and thought, no, we're just <laughs> going to go straight into this one. Nobody needs more backstory. I kind of think it's just important to be able to join all three movies up at the end and be able to run them as a film. And I think, you know, Kate Blanchett's great to come on at the beginning of the story and do the prologue, but this is not the beginning of the story. We did have this opening for a very long time, though. This was actually written quite early, in very early drafts. Well, the Balrog um, scene was, the mm. mountain scene, I remember thinking of that idea when, when I was in a cutting room cutting it, because I thought, how do we actually open the movie? And we knew we were going to open it with the reprise of the Balrog and the um, plunge, but you know, what's the first shot? And then I thought the mountains, I love the idea of hearing the voices coming from mm. the first movie. It occurred to me, it's reminiscent of what um, Zemeckis did on the Back to the Future part two, when the characters were sort of, you know, went back to the first film again. And I love the idea of, we hear something that's familiar coming from inside the mountain, but it's not really the first film, although it's sort of going back to halfway through the first film, which is kind of neat. The editing of this was identical to what we did in the Fellowship, although we, we switched a couple of Frodo shots around, just changed it slightly, and then the plunge. This came about because we felt it was very important to prefigure in some way Gandalf's reappearance in the story. You know, you just couldn't have him step out of the woods. It kind of replaces the prologue and achieves a similar goal because it reminds people of the first film again. Mm. It actually sort of repositions you back in to where you were a year ago watching The Fellowship of the Ring and to reorientate you into the world of the movie um, before you have to start giving new information and having people think about new things. There was also that great John Howe painting that you fell in love with, Peter. Yeah, well, that's true. This entire scene way, way back in our scriptwriting days, you know, <laughs> years ago, was inspired by one single John Howe painting because I would have never, ever thought about showing the fight between Gandalf and the Balrog, but... John had painted an image for a card game, for a board role-playing game, which was Gandalf fighting the Balrog. And as soon as I saw that picture, I said, wow, we've got to do this scene. If that hadn't been for that painting, it wouldn't have happened, I don't think. I would never have thought of it. The scene was drastically shortened um, before we ever shot anything for budgetary reasons, because once Gandalf hit the water, remember we were going to have yeah. the Balrog turn to slime, yes. um, and he was going to be like a slimy 
Balrog creature fighting underwater, and then they were going to have a battle up the staircase. There's sort of what's called the endless stair, and we had storyboards for all that stuff. Eventually, I, and it was was literally due to budgetary constraints, wasn't yes, it? I'm it was. not really wanting to go there. I think at one point we had to cut some CG stuff down, and we and the slimy Balrog was going to cost fifty grand or something, and we decided to do without him. I remember what that. What was he called? He wasn't called Slimy Balrog. Oh, I think he? We, well, he I was. He was Slime Balrog. Slime yeah. Balrog. Slime Balrog. It's great to have a different title shot. It's the same as what we did with the Fellowship Special Edition. It sort of freshens up. It, it kind of identifies this as the Special Edition because the, the title of the film's in a completely different place in the movie. Can you see the bottom? I remember, Pete, you and I tried about a million different ways to get this, the rope, the elvish rope into the... I know. Because it was just such it's, an iconic moment. And it's a lovely part of the book, and it was always tough to fit it in. And uh, It didn't have a story imperative, unfortunately. Well, you realise it's become a uh, DVD special edition kind of thing now because the giving of the elvish rope to Sam and was in the Fellowship Extended mm-hmm. cut, and then the using of it is in the Two Towers <laughs> yeah. Extended cut. If you look at the movie version, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's kind of cute. We were first approaching this that you wanted to show Frodo less grim. You didn't want to start on him. Yeah, this was one of the scenes we shot as a pickup scene with the actors coming back during the course of the editing and doing some extra shooting. And this was one of the scenes we actually shot, although we didn't use it in the movie eventually. But it was done to try to see a little bit more of a lighter side to Frodo and Sam before the story got too grim. It does succeed in that. I'm pleased to have it back because... The Frodo that we see here at the beginning of the film is more similar to how Frodo ends up at the end of the film after he's travelled the journey that he's about to go on. Fran and I went hunting for something that could remind Frodo of the Shire. Sure enough, there it was in the book, and the salt is actually something that Sam does carry all the way. We can't leave this here for someone to follow us down. Who's going to follow us down here, Mr Frodo? The little prefiguring of Gollum is quite nice too because... You know, we, um, we're we aware that Gollum's around after the first movie, and we... Well, there's nothing for it. It's certainly in this longer version, um, we'd shot little bits and pieces that were teasing on him following them. We abandoned all that in the theatrical and just sort of introduced him very quickly. This was shot on a real volcano in New Zealand called Ruapehu. Um, it's the sort of the, the one place we could find with all these jagged rocks and mountain peaks and because um, the Emin Mill scene is something that I love in the book as well the idea of just walking around this misshrouded um, mountainous countryside and getting lost going around in circles and the wider shots were shot about two years earlier weren't they well the wide shots were done in the original shoot yeah the wide location shots and this close-ups that we're looking at now were again part of the pickups that we did and this sort of shows you what pickups can be like where you're inserting a couple of new lines of dialogue into a scene you've already shot before we just did these in the studio. That's a studio shot. That's, that's a studio shot. And now we're back on location again, um, just Two up. years earlier. Yeah, two just years Just coming up by. about... Now. And now we're back on location <laughs> shot. Two years apart. Lambus bread. The Limbus bread is a funny little um, thing too because like, the Limbus bread was introduced in the Fellowship Extended Cut but it was in a theatrical version of The Two Towers so unless you knew something of Tolkien or had watched the DVD you wouldn't have a clue what this stuff was but you know, too bad. We can't worry about those sorts of things. What was that limbus bread, by the way? It was, was it scone or? Sort of, it, it was like a sort looks of like a, something I'd make. <laughs> well, it was, it was baked in the oven. It was like a sort of a 
pastry sort of biscuity shortbread type thing that they the art department made them and they had a big supply of them and I think people <coughs> had to nibble on them during the course of the shoot. I love this scene. Another prefiguring of Gollum where we just wanted to build up tension before his arrival. All of this stuff was you know, things that we just did without when we cut the theatrical version, really just to try to get the time down to three hours, and we just felt, you know, we, we won't have spent so long, into, you know, prefiguring Gollum. This stuff here was, this was a great day, because we were up this mountain, and suddenly the clouds descended, and it fogged right up, and we just grabbed our cameras. We abandoned what we were supposed to shoot, and, and just said, let's shoot the stuff of them wandering around lost. Quickly, it's foggy, it's misty, it's great, it's cloudy, and all this is natural. None of this is like added artificial fake smoke. Um, it's all real clouds and smoke that suddenly, or mist that was suddenly there on the day. And we, we shot the stuff very quickly. We sort of jumped onto the scene when, it, when we realised that the clouds were going to be with us for a few hours. Gollum, it's kind of weird to watch this because when we shot these plates, you know, the background footage, it was, um, it, it was about two years before we ever really saw Gollum. And you're shooting, you know, a shot like this, craning down the cliff, and you're just hoping one day that Gollum's going to look good. <laughs> and you've got no idea. You've got no idea. You're just shooting this rock and and praying that one day you're going to have a great-looking creature there. And, and I, you did. And we did, yeah. He's fantastic. He's so amazing. I think that, you know, the wetter animators and the, the CG artists just wanted to do the best work possible and uh, threw their heart and soul into doing this guy. For, for a very long time, this was actually Andy fighting with him. Yeah, all of, the, all of the shots in this fight are, are with Andy Circus actually physically interacting, like when Frodo grabs Gollum's hands here, it is Andy's hands he's holding, he's really holding Andy's hands, and we put Gollum's hands over the top, so the, the physical interaction is really quite real and immediate. That's one that, of my that shot, the, yeah, that's my favourite shot too, it's incredible. When, when I saw that shot, yeah, that was like one of the first times you really felt this guy's going to work. Mm. I love the blanket spinning around. Oh yeah, well that was because Andy spun it around with his feet. We didn't plan on that, we just, but we used it. <laughs> the image of Frodo with the sword at Gollum's throat while Gollum's got Sam is straight out of an Alan Lee painting. We actually had Alan's painting on the set. It was one that he did for the Tolkien books a few years ago, and, and I always loved that painting, and I just said, I want to recreate this. And Alan was actually there on the day we shot it, and we sort of worked at trying to get the actors to push themselves into the same positions as what was in, on his painting. I love the grading in this too, Peter. Great colours. It's hard to make this stuff look real. It's all in a studio and it tends to look like a studio. You've got to be very, very careful. But once we sort of made it go blue and dark, it looked a lot better. But uh, it's really tricky. You're always terrified it's going to look like some cheap, tacky TV thing. And where's that? What was so that that's shot? a map painting for the Oh, are you kidding? Yeah, it's a fake shot. You can't go and visit it. Oh, <laughs> why not? <laughs> we can. It'll be on someone's wall. <laughs> This is pulling Andy along, Andy Circus, and uh, replacing him with Gollum through a lot of the sequence. This scene actually helped set Gollum's voice, because this was one of the early scenes that you got stuck into, eh, Fran? This was where the voice finally came into being. We had to sign off on it, didn't we? Especially for clarity and, and how far you could go with some of the noises. And Yes, it was, because in one of the early screenings of um, the film that we had for, for some New Line people, they, they really didn't understand a word of Gollum. They didn't understand anything. He was completely incomprehensible to them. So uh, 
at that point, we, we had to really work to bring clarity to, um, to Andy's voice without compromising character. It was quite a, quite a journey for him. It was sort of a journey for us because I remember for a long time New Line were, were listening to a voice they couldn't understand and they were looking at a, at a guy in leotard yes. on screen instead of the CG creature and, and we were just getting strong feedback from them, say, less Gollum, less Gollum, less Gollum. This guy is, I remember them saying, uh, you know, this guy's okay in a very small dose but you wouldn't want too much of him. And, and it was because they just were not seeing him, they were not hearing what he was going to sound like. And... It's tough to deal with that, really, because they don't quite have the, you know, the imagination or the vision of, of what's going to be there that we do, and you just have to sort of, well, ignore it, basically. Well, the other side of it is you wouldn't want a key character to be not, you know, understood, so it was something that we wanted, we had to address. It was just that he had such a great voice for the character, we didn't want to lose that either. Mm. Um, and separate to that, there were two voices that of Gollum and, and Schmeagel. So we, you know, we had to try to keep that differentiation uh, going as well. But Andy really, really was such a trooper. I mean, he, he worked this stuff over and over. He did so many sessions, didn't he, mm. with us? On this particular scene, I think, he recorded this about five times. Mm. The extra footage here uh, gives a lot more clarity to the concept of Gollum actually leading them out of these rocks. I, I kind of like the idea that he's become this really weird guide for them, which, which was lost a little bit, um, or certainly more obscure in the theatrical cut. Yeah, he's pretty conflicted about going to Mordor, which was which was good too. It's kind of like the, it is the first Gollum Schmeagel interchange, it is, really, yes, which, which yes. we're seeing now, but it wasn't in the movie. Um, it sort of starts to establish that, that dynamic. It was great for, for reinforcing that he had been there before and, and for setting up that whole idea, when and why and how had he been there before. I know, we played around with the idea of, of having that flashback to him being tortured again that we saw in the yeah, Fellowship and that scene in Bag End and we tried to actually put it into the Two Towers. We didn't do it, I mean, it's not in the extended cut either, but we did play around for a while with just reminding people that he knew about Mordor because he had been a prisoner there for a while. I guess it was in the fellowship, so hopefully people will remember. This scene with the Uruks was shot in a very remote part of the South Island, and this canyon um, is a canyon that we actually replicated in the parking lot of our studio about two years later, because the dialogue scenes that are coming up in here with between Mary and Pippin are um, some shots that we did during the post-production of the film because we felt that at that point in time we felt we wanted to really establish Mary and Pippin with a dialogue scene and have them talking to each other and have that be their first scene in the film. And so we shot the dialogue um, and then we felt eventually that uh, we didn't actually need that and we just sort of had the the original running. But this stuff here is now shot in a, in a polystyrene replica of the canyon in the uh, Wellington studio. It was also that, it's similar to the rope scene, it was that being able to get in that great beat in the book where they do shove the orc medicine down Mary's throat, which a lot of people, for some strange reason, remember. Yeah. What was it? I, uh, yeah, what I, is was, that stuff? I don't know, it looks like Coca-Cola. I think it? it was peach tea and... Oh, that's right, it was peach tea. No, you're right, it was yeah. cold tea with probably something added to thicken it up a yeah. bit. Yeah, and, and Coca-Cola, I think, it, I know, yeah. it was Coke syrup. It was concentrated, you know, when you make your own soda? Oh, oh for cola. Yeah. Oh, it's... Ooh. Nasty. Nasty. <laughs> Poor darling Dom. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it's a nice intimate moment. I, I do like the fact that these two hobbits are, you know, they're being brave in, in the midst of this terrifying ordeal, and we sort of see their spirit, and we see a little bit of their humour and camaraderie, and that's the reason why we shot it. It's the reason why we felt we wanted that to be the first time that we see them in this particular movie. What is it? Who's that orc? Who's the one who says man flesh? Because that's Nat Lees, isn't it? Oh, on the um, on, on the left, yeah, and the um, other one was Sala. Oh, okay. Sala Baker, who people may know, played Sauron under the um, armor of Sauron in the prologue of the first film. That was Sala uh, as an Urukai. Oh, cool. The Elven Brooches is another little plot thing that is only introduced in the Fellowship Extended Cut, but obviously people have seen them wearing these Elven Brooches after Lothlorien, so I, I, I guess people realise that uh, that they picked them up along the way. The concept that I was doing with, the, with when I shot the stuff of introducing the boys running the, um, was, was to keep the camera moving as much as possible all the time. So I, I designed the shots so that the camera very rarely um, was ever still. It was kind of as they were, they were always moving, so we would always be moving around. The tremendous irony with this running stuff, which is kind of very iconic from the books, is that, you know, after waiting a long time to shoot this, and we were only on those locations for a very few days, and we had no choice but to shoot it because we were never going back there, Vigo had just broken his toe mm -hmm. in a scene that's coming up in the movie a bit later on. Brett Beatty, who played the small Gimli, had dislocated his knee, and Orlando Bloom had fallen off a horse and cracked a rib. And so I was shooting the running stuff with these guys like the walking wounded. Um, and there's great dailies where they, they're, they're limping and they're hobbling and they're groaning. <laughs> but they were real troopers. They were, they were really great. Another beat from the book we were determined to get in. Yeah, I love the line, the leaves of, for of Lorien. Not idly, the leaves of Lorien. No, that's right, thank you, good. You know all the, the best lines. But I love that line from the book and uh, it was nice to put it in the movie, the elven brooch. And, you know, I'm just trying to keep the camera craning and moving to give a flow to the chase. And this is South New Zealand, uh, Alexandra, where there was a lot of gold mining happening in the 1800s. It's a little bit different to the book because the plains of Rohan and the book, you do feel like they're just grasslands. They're like the prairies mm. of Russia or America, the, you know, endless grass as far as the eye can see. And we actually don't have a location like that in New Zealand. We have no grasslands per se, but this place I thought was a great stand-in for Rohan because it has these interesting rock formations. You know those moving shots where you had both with Aragorn and Legolas? Uh, How did you do that? Well, that was just a dolly that was tracking along the front of them. And even though you're not getting closer to them or you're not getting further away, it actually just makes the background roll around yeah. the back of them. And that was just my obsession with keeping the camera moving. As I was saying, mm. I just didn't want to do a static shot. We used to call this the pizza, didn't we? The pizza place. This was funny. We rewrote this voiceover about 50 million times, and the last time was when Pete was about to record with Christopher Lee. I was in Malta actually doing ADR with Gimli, and I was out shopping in a gift shop, and my phone rang, and it was Fran saying, we've got to fix this line. Pete's about to record it. And which, which was the line? It was the um, fires of industry mm -hmm. line. The old ways are burning in the fires of industry. That's right. We couldn't get it right. It is. It's a Stephen line. Mm -hmm. This particular script is credited to Philippa Fran and myself, and in addition there's Stephen Sinclair. Stephen was involved back in the Miramax days when it was two scripts. We felt it was obviously fair to credit him, though he wasn't really involved in the screenplays over the last three or four years. 
This is quite a big miniature, the Baradur Tower. It's something like 20 feet tall, and even just to do a shot where we're rotating and going right up to the summit of it is um, quite a big move for the miniature team to do. The tree falling into the pit is a, a steal from the first movie. We took the same shot we used in the first film and just flipped it around to make it look kind of different. In fact, this whole montage is actually comprised of outtakes from the film one montage, apart from this Uruk birthing stuff, which we never used in the first film. We were going to use it in the first film at some stage, but we only really had uh, Lurtz being born in the first film, and we didn't show many other Uruks being born. And, and we felt that we wanted to re-establish the concept that Saruman's army was growing bigger by the day, therefore the threat was growing bigger. This is a woman, this one. Yeah, it? the orc she's, with the long neck. She's great. The she's orc fantastic. with the long neck is a great looking orc, and it's actually it's, it, a, it's a lady inside there, yeah. I wish I could Quite a few of the orc, orcs are women, you know, they're not all blokes. What are you saying? I don't know what I'm saying. They, I, they didn't bring their own costumes. Eh? <laughs> this scene establishes the whole concept of Fangorn being the forest on the borders of Isengard and Fangorn is what they're now going to rip into to get more wood and timber to burn in the industry and ultimately obviously Fangorn the forest exacts its revenge and so it's got a quite a nice little place in our story. Another new scene that we felt was important to establish the characters of the wild men. Uh, there's a lot of confusion, particularly amongst New Line. We thought orcs were baddies or uruks were baddies. Who, who are these guys? This in the book, and you know, Saruman is gathering the disenfranchised human beings to his cause as well. The uh, rather primitive inbred wild men. You always almost imagine to hear banjos playing in this scene, don't you? <laughs> there's a bit of inbreeding going on. People think that I did a cameo in this, and I probably should have done a cameo because I would have loved to have acted with Christopher Lee, um, if you can call my cameos acting. But you were shooting two scenes that day, weren't you? I, I was shooting two scenes. I was up the other studio. I remember jumping in the car and driving for about a mile down to that set, shooting a shot with Christopher, driving back up to the other set, shooting something. Yeah, I can't even remember what it was. Something completely was shooting. different, yeah. quite, something like quite... something from the third movie, mm. from Return of the King or something. And it was it was a tough day because uh, there was two hundred extras in that tin shed, mm. baking hot, waiting for me. And Christopher was waiting for me, and they were waiting for me to finish up the other shot so I could drive down and shoot that. It was on one of those doing two things at once days. This is a sequence that was shot by Jeff Murphy, our second unit director. I think he did a great job. I love the performances of the kids. Um, in this scene, it really feels nice and real. This village was built on the side of a, um, a really amazing area called Pullburn Lakes in New Zealand, and we built quite a few of the huts. Some of them are, are computer-generated in the wide shot, but most of what you see here we did for real. It was this amazing little Scandinavian-style village on the side of the lake. Now, it wasn't actually raining on this shot, was it? No, this rain was added later. It was its um, computer-generated rain. We did use rain towers for the close-ups, but this is too big and wide to be able to be covered by a rain tower. This is real rain, this is just you know coming off a tower now. The Fords of Eisen is a, quite an evocative scene, which I, I really wanted to include it in the theatrical version, but I don't think any of it ended up in a theatrical version, did it? And, and it's establishing the character of Theodred, um, King Théoden's son. And this is a, sort of really our first glimpse of the people of Rohan. Um, the soldiers of Rohan, certainly, and Aemir, it introduces Aemir. It's political in intrigue that's in the book, and it's a bit hard to translate it into the movie because, you know, nobody knows really at this stage that Saruman's orcs 
causing this damage that they assume that orcs coming from Mordor but then the white hand on the helmet is is the first clue that Saruman who has the white hand as his personal symbol is is behind this it's kind of intrigue and mystery um, in a way that can easily overcomplicate what what um, is already a complicated story Miranda Otto's first scene in the film I love this dress it's one of Nala's great dresses in the book, Theodred's death happens a little bit before the events of the Two Towers, yeah. and it's sort of told in retrospect. And we like the idea of Theodred having a son, you know, a dying son, as part of our screen story. And so we really brought Theodred's death up into the body of the Two Towers, which it's not technically in the same time frame as it is here, in the, if, as opposed to the book. Bernard, under hours and hours worth of makeup. Mm. I think that was a four or five hour makeup job that he had to go through. Saruman, the white has ever been. Again, a very memorable part of the book. Brad Dourif's worm tongue is superb. He had to shave his eyebrows off. Not a lot, a lot of people really notice it, although it does give him a weird experience. And Brad's problem is that he had to come down to New Zealand five different times during the course of two years to shoot his role and um, his, his wife and uh, child would say goodbye to him on each of these five trips with eyebrows and he'd return home a few days later without any eyebrows. <laughs> and it happened five times over two years. He's got a false nose and this yeah. makeup, hasn't he? He's got a... Prosthetic nose and some warts, I think. They glued on some warts and mm -hmm. some moles on his face. And there's a, there's a patch of hair that's fallen out that they scabbed up. And Brad loved that because he, he would pick at it as part of his character's performance. And he's got a cataract in one eye. That's right. He's got a cloudy eye. I love the idea that, that there's some weird longing, some, some romantic urge on Wormtongue's part towards Eowyn. Mm. Yes. Well, it's, what's weird about Wormtongue is that he's so clearly identified both through his name and his appearance as an evil character. And generally in Tolkien, he doesn't do that. Generally, there's a bit more complexity in terms of how he, how these how his particular characters are drawn. But in Wormtongue's case, he is much more sort of just archetypally evil. We actually drew on it for the end scene, remember? Which He's, is not in yeah, this film. Yeah, he, he did start out as mm. a, a, a good man. A, a good man. And, and third and goes there. Yeah. He actually does tell us a little bit about where Grima came from. There is, there is stuff in the book about him. Right. I mean, he actually reflects Saruman's own fall. Right, okay, so he's like a mini version of, version of yeah, Saruman. Yeah, he, he is. In yeah. the court of Edoras. Mm. Mm. A little tag on bit here that's in the extended edition just to, just to set up the idea of the banishment a little bit clearer. And also we like the idea that Théoden had signed his nephew's death warrant. Barry Osborne, our producer, was actually the um, second unit director that shot a lot of these chase scenes. He spent a few days with the big, you know, Uruk crowd down in the South Island uh, in a helicopter doing some of this stuff. And then I did the little inserts like this. So anything we were close on the actors would be me, and then anything wide like this shot here would be the second unit. It's sort of how we broke up the um, responsibilities in some of these scenes. Yes, good old Orlando. He managed to get that terrible line off the page. He did. He crowbarred it up. <laughs> they, they run as if the very whips of their masters were behind them. Or with a broken rib, too. And, yeah, on the move. 
It was quite a hard piece of ADR. He's a great actor, that young boy. This scene here is actually um, an assembly of three different scenes, really. We originally, back in, in our first um, shooting, you know, the principal photography, we shot two different scenes because there were going to be two camps at night to show the passing of time, that they were gonna, the Uruks were going to rest up, they were going to um, have a bit of dialogue, then they were going to run again, and then there'd be another scene at night the following day. And then later, a couple of years later, during our pickup shooting, we shot some additional dialogue that we wanted to add to it. And then eventually we sort of took everything we had and just cut it together in one scene. So the, the scenes talking about the trees and the forest, which Mary and Pippin are doing, were, were, was dialogue that we added during post-production. We shot this, um, although we'd already shot the scenes of them arriving and being thrown, thrown on the ground a couple of years earlier. And then the scene that... Um, has the attack where the um, horsemen arrive was yet another scene that was going well, was supposed to be a night or two later, but we ended up just incorporating it into this one scene and making it just one particular, one longer section. This is actually Andy Circus's voice, by the way. He did this hawk, and he actually did the Yurikai who spoke the other line previously. Was that when you were doing, doing ADR in, in uh, England with him and you wanted him to do a few extra... Actually, you? no, it was, it was here in New Zealand, oh, but, that, but no. yeah, but uh, no, friendly suggested Andy have a go at it, and so he did, and he was good. This is a voice by a lovely English actor called Jim Dunk. This whole concept is a little bit obscure for people that don't know Tolkien about the Urukai and the Orcs having this rivalry. It's much clearer in the books. We sort of have obviously incorporated it into here because it's great, I think, to have these baddies having their own internal kind of arguments. There is a whole story in the book about where these orcs come from, and they're, they're actually sent from Mordor, aren't they, mm -hmm. in the books? Some of the orcs from Moria who were already in the pack, and then there's oh, the that's right. and they ones kind of, from Mordor who waylay them. and argue. We originally emphasised it a bit more in the very first version of the scene that we shot, didn't we? Yes, it just got too confusing when you had essentially two evil forces having a, an internal conflict when you had the hobbits also at, at risk. It was, oh, I felt it like it was off the point. It was, it was off the point and a bit confusing um, to get into that, to that level of detail. About. Didn't move the story forward at all. No, it, was just, it, just, it just waylaid everything. It does, but on the other hand, it kind of adds authenticity to it. You know, that's, that's the upside of it is, it, is it to have something that feels off the point but does you know, feel kind of real... It somehow makes an it audience, you know, it makes an audience mm. buy into it a bit more. But it is true, you don't want to confuse people. Um, that is, you know, something to try to avoid at all times. The Orc here is played by a, uh, a great New Zealand actor called Stephen Ewer. And Stephen is such a great actor at playing orcs that we that we use them in all three movies playing different orcs mm. so there's often when, when an orc is delivering dialogue whether it be in you know the first second or third film it's often Stephen under different makeup mm. so he plays a lot of different orc characters and he looks different in each role because of obviously he's wearing the prosthetics I love the idea way back when we were writing the screenplay about you know us the audience thinking that Mary and Pippin might be dead. I thought that was just really cool, yeah. and we wanted to stretch that out a bit and you know make people who were unfamiliar with the books obviously um, really wonder and, and, and believe that they might be dead. Amazing shot. Yeah, this shot was done by Jeff Murphy again down in. Uh, 
Alexandra. I love that shot of the um, horses all turning around. It's like one of those flock of birds, isn't it, that kind mm. of sweep around and come back. And then I shot, uh, I shot all this other drama in one day, which is quite a lot of work to do in a single day of shooting. And I knew I had to get through it really quickly, so I, I said to the guys, look, we're just going to shoot it handheld. We're going to um, not worry about tripods, not worry about dollies, not do any of that. I only, only had a day and I had to get through it really quickly, this entire dialogue scene. So that's kind of why it has a, um, a slightly loose handheld feel, because it was done for speed reasons. I had two cameras rolling at the same time, so one camera would be aiming at Aragorn, one camera would be aiming at Gimli or Legolas. And it was just a way of blasting through the footage. It's good though, it suits the scene. Yeah. We uh, recolorised Legolas's eyes in this scene. In the computer? Yes. Because his contact lenses were... He wasn't wearing his contacts oh, he and wasn't. he's got brown eyes. His contact lenses, well, I think we had a problem with them. Well, I know there were some days where he'd actually scratched his eye, wasn't there, and he couldn't wear his contact lenses for a few days. We had, mm. to, we had to end up changing the colour of his eyes quite a lot in our computer. The introduction of characters has always been, it's always been a challenge and it, well it's a drag really to have to do it because you want to get on with the storytelling and the notion of having to introduce someone before you can actually engage them with the plot is boring. <laughs> so you have to attempt to introduce them in, whilst you're unfolding the plot. You know, we, somehow... we, had, we had seven new characters to introduce in the two towers. Yeah, it's kind of like folding in the eggs while you've got the sugar and the milk and you're kind of mixing it all up together and hopefully people haven't really noticed that you've also served up a bunch of introductions while you have also involved them in you know, the premise of some piece the scars action. of introducing 12 characters in the fellowship had barely healed. I know. And we had a whole lot more to have to introduce. There's an old man. The shots of John Reese davies playing Gimli in this scene were actually done on a completely different day. They were done about six months after the main scene was shot because we didn't have John there at all for the main drama photography when Aemir and Aragorn and Legolas are talking. We had his uh, small double, Brett Beatty, and then a lot later... We put John in the makeup and we put a few horses behind him and we just shot some close-ups of him hundreds of miles away from where the original location was. I love the Scandinavian kind of design of the Rohan Riders. I, that's something that you get that strong impression from Tolkien's book, that sort of culture. And I think Weta did a great job on the armour and the, the look of all the, the leather work and the embossing and the helmets and... It just makes, because I think, you know, if a culture like this is believable, then you somehow, it makes the whole film believable. It, it, it's, it's a case of trying to remove that fantasy, science fiction kind of artifice from the movie and give it a grounding in some sort of history. And it's so important because you want to make this stuff feel authentic, as authentic as possible. This scene had to do a lot, but actually wasn't subjected to a lot of rewrites, was it? We no, no, it's, it's, just, it's similar to this in the book, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's we, very similar. It's one of those scenes in the book that you're able to go in and, and adapt with relative ease by um, just taking the, the key moments mm. that Tolkien wrote about and sort of shortening it down and changing the order of a few things, but it's kind of there. I love that shot there of uh, Vigo. His performance, but with that huge um, crowd of horses galloping down the, the hill behind him. I love the head and the stake. You know what they've done with this head and the stake? No, no. what did they do? For TV? No. They've filmed a helmet and they've like got wetted to superimpose a helmet over the severed head because um, it would be too shocking for 
American television audiences. The old skewered helmet trick. Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you have to laugh, don't you? No, you do. Yeah, nothing wrong with a good old head on a stick. Legolas is actually saying here, may they find peace after death. We were in two minds as to whether or not to subtitle it, and I think in the end it was too intrusive to chuck a subtitle in it. I thought it was in death. May, may they find, find peace, peace in death. In death, yes, in it death. is. It yeah. is in death. The kicking of that helmet was where Vigo broke his toe, and he's falling down, screaming like that, because he's literally just broken his toe on that That was his real kick. scream. Yeah. We had to leave it in, in memory. And so from that point on, for the next couple of weeks of shooting, Vigo was incredibly sore. He had his foot bound up in bandages um, underneath his boot. We had to, to stop filming that particular day, and the scene that we're now watching, the continuation of the scene where he tracks the markings across the ground was the following day, and he managed to disguise his limping very, very well. How many books were in the two towers? Was There's two. It There's always two? just two in each of them. Right. So mm. the first half is Aragorn in the guise, and then, and then yeah, halfway through it suddenly switches to um, Frodo, Sam and Gollum, and then of course it ends with Shelob and the whole thing about Frodo possibly dying. Yeah. It was quite a challenge to try and link those stories because they're not particularly linked in the books and, and they are told in those two separate pieces. Gandalf was a very useful character in that regard because he was the common link between Frodo's quest, which he, after all, had sent Frodo off on, and Aragorn's fate. And he was really driving both stories. And so we would take time out, as Tolkien does in the book, really, to to speak to that and to speak to the bigger conflict that Gandalf has with Sauron in terms of the struggle for power over Middle-earth. You also artificially link stories together, don't you? Like Aragorn is tracking what happened to Merry and Pippin and you intercut Merry and Pippin running at night, then you go back to Aragorn following the footsteps then back to Merry and Pippin. And so suddenly you actually have Aragorn, Merry and Pippin in the same scene in the film, except they're not in the same scene. This was a studio set, Pangorn Forest, because we, we hunted around on location in New Zealand to try to find a real forest that could stand in for Fangorn, but it's sort of so evocative and so atmospheric, and the trees have to be big old gnarly, twisted trees, and we literally just couldn't find a single place in New Zealand that we thought would be a good Fangorn, so we, we decided it should have a slightly heightened you know, feel. It didn't have to be ultra-realistic, and so we built all these trees. Everything that you're seeing here is either a miniature forest or it's a, it's a set, a studio set, and all of the trees are fake. They're a wonderful job, incredible um, art department to actually be able to build these things to look real, because often fake trees look really like fake trees. He's gone. I always felt guilty when we would walk into a Fangorn set, because I'd think about the trees that died for the set and how it was so much in conflict with what the story yeah, was about. Yeah, most of it was made up of old dead trees, um, bits and pieces lying on the ground, and the bark was usually rubber. I mean, a lot of the bark on the trees was actually just big sheets of rubber that had been moulded off a, um, a real tree. The first time we see Treebeard, Treebeard was a real difficult character. Initially he was, and conceptually he was tough, because I always felt that there's no way we could do a walking, talking tree without making him look stupid. And I think I was being, you know, re really freaked out by the way he looked in the Ralph Bakshi cartoon version of Lord of the Rings, mm. where he looked like a walking carrot. 
And on the very first day at Weta, way back in maybe 1997, you know, I had the designers around and I said, listen, the biggest challenge is going to be to design an ent, to design something that doesn't make us laugh. Daniel Faulkner, one of Richard's great designers, went away, drew a pencil sketch, showed it to me, and it was treebeard. It was mm-hmm. perfect. It was the first time in my life I'd ever seen an ent illustrated in a way that looked really great. Mm. And it was his very first drawing. And I said, we've got treebeard. Okay, we don't have to do any more work on that. Let's go on to the next thing. It was incredible. It just happened instantaneously. And about four years later, that original pencil sketch was used to design the final creature that we that we had in the movie. And Daniel loves and knows Tolkien so, so well. I like the pedantic nature of Treebeard. He he is probably my favourite character. I mean, Gollum, obviously, is pretty amazing, but as a sort of a fantasy character, I just like the fact that he's so pedantic and he's rather bureaucratic and he's kind of dull. And and, and his dullness I find very humorous and funny. He's a rather self-important character. And some of that, I think, comes from almost wanting to send Tolkien up, doesn't it? That Tolkien clearly kind of revered Treebeard to such a degree that you can't help but want to sort of poke fun at that a little bit when you're making the movie. It was difficult to create the face of Treebeard in the sense that because he was supposed to be bark, you know, you don't really want bark to act like rubber and sort of stretch and push and squeeze, and yet that's what the skin of a face does. So we somehow had to try to get a balance between being able to have a mobile, flexible face, but not betray the fact that it is supposed to be kind of wood. We didn't try too hard to get many expressions into his face because we thought that with the more expressions there were, the less he'd actually come across like a tree. Mm, in fact, there are times when he, he lapses into being a tree, doesn't he? Yeah, which is great. <laughs> I always think if he forgets to move for too long, he's going <laughs> he's gonna to sprout roots and kind, of, kind yeah. of find it hard to move again. This shot was about the first Gollum shot we ever did. Um, we didn't have a clue what Gollum was going to really look like when we shot Frodo and Sam walking up this hill. We were keeping our fingers crossed about three years ago that one day there'd be a golem put there that would be looking all right. The Dead Marshes was primarily a set that we built in the parking lot of an old factory right next to a railway station. And a lot of times that we'd be shooting the Dead Marshes and there'd be trains rolling through the background. You'd actually see them in the film, the trains going right past the back of shot. And then uh, later on we painted it all out and put an extension to the marshes in here. The big aerial shot is some real marshlands that are down the South Island of New Zealand that I found completely by mistake. I was actually in a helicopter going between two different locations to shoot something for the third movie. We had a camera strapped to the the helicopter, not for shooting dead marshes, but for shooting actually the beacons of Minas Tirith in the third film. And we were just flying along soon after dawn and we came across this marshland that I never even knew existed. And I said to the guys, God, this looks like the dead marshes. And so we weren't planning on filming anything, but we had film in the camera. So I said to the pilot, let's just circle around here for a while and let's just roll some film. This is one of the extra scenes that we wrote originally to begin a sort of a slightly more meaningful relationship between Gollum and Frodo, didn't we? Yeah, so it's playing to the first beat where you you see that there is this connection between them, and that comes, of course, at the end of the scene. I love this moment. I always love the wham. (laughs) Yeah, Mm, it's a great piece from the book too when he talks about crunchable birds and you know. Yeah, famished the fact that he eats the most horrible things. I mean, it's one of the great, yeah, you know, he eats everything yeah. that's wriggly and squirmy and raw and horrible and nasty. Here's Sam's disgust 
is palpable and, and that's something that plays to the later scene when they have the argument. It was one of those scenes we tried to make it do a few things, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, what it, what it kind of does towards the end is, which is probably the most important function of the scene, is to start to mirror yeah. that Gollum has shared knowledge with Frodo about what it's like to carry this ring, information that Sam can never, ever know. Yes, mm. it is quite creepy. You know, one of the interesting things with animation that you're seeing in this scene is less is more with Gollum, that we try often to keep his animation very still and not have him move too much. Obviously there's times when he is manic and he's panicking and he's running around, but for the really intense moments, you know, we discovered, didn't we, that, that just keeping him as motionless as possible and trying to generate all the feeling out of his eyes. Yes. Which is what actors do, obviously. You know, if they don't do that, then they tend to yeah. o- overact. And you're the same with Gollum. You could so easily get Gollum overacting, couldn't you? Yes. Well, it seems there seems to be a, um, a tradition with animated characters to yeah. do a lot of body acting, a lot of physical You both acting. spent a lot of time pulling that stuff back, I remember, watching endlessly as they'd bring shots to you both and you'd be, both be saying, pull it back, bring it back. But also that scene was meant to play very directly to when Frodo rejects Gollum and finds him disgusting. And this is meant to be part of his journey towards actually seeing something else. But at this start, at the very beginning, he finds Gollum disgusting. And it was supposed to play to this moment where he turns the other way and Gollum almost, even though he saves Frodo, rejects him and is quite cold to him when he pulls him out and just says, don't follow the lights. Very evocative, spooky Dead Marsh stuff in the book. I love the the corpses lying under the water. Of course, a few people have said that um, Tolkien got the inspiration, if you can call it inspiration, for this stuff from the First World War when he saw bodies of soldiers lying in the shell holes, the flooded shell holes. And no one's going to really realise if they haven't read the book, but the... The bodies under the water here, of course, are supposed to be fallen soldiers from the battle that was in the prologue of the Fellowship of the Ring, isn't it? It's that mm-hmm. same period Lugle of history lag. that they've been lying there for about two or 3,000 years. They're actually really creepy. Yeah, these were silicon dummies that Richard Taylor's team made at Weta. Was this guy real? Yeah, the guy that we're seeing now was a real person. Everybody else is a rubber dummy, but this guy's a stuntman and that looked the most like an elf and he just held his breath under the water. But he had normal eyes, and in actual fact, when we shot him, but we painted them out on the computer to give him those white um, eyes. It was your idea, Fran, wasn't it, to, mm. to take his eyes, turn them white? This stuff's not really in the book, is it, quite no. in the way that we did it? It's, it's. I think there's something in the book that you feel that once you get under the surface of the water, these corpses are actually quite creepy and they're, mm. go- and they're ghoulish, and we kind of enhanced it for the movie. I think Gollum definitely hints at that conceptually in the book yeah definitely and also what I love about that is that you just know he's been down there great shot of Gollum pulling Frodo out of the water which is an example of um, using Andy Circus to actually just pull him out and we painted Andy out and put Gollum over the top but you get that wonderful feeling of real physical connection between the two characters this was a scene that we shot as a pickup um, early in the editing of the two towers. We felt we didn't have really a strong moment of Frodo and the ring, because unlike the Fellowship of the Ring, where he actually puts it on two or three times, and so you have that real impact of what happens in the Twilight world, um, in this film he never puts the ring on, so in a way we hardly ever see the ring. The scene develops into a really nice connection between 
Gollum and Frodo. We thought it would be really creepy, actually. I think this was your idea, friend, that Gollum knows when he's looking at the ring. Knows exactly. He's rubbing his hand because he's yeah. almost feeling the ring yeah. in his hand like Frodo was looking at it in his. We took these lines from a cut. This is an amalgam, the poem that Gollum is saying. Was it from the Barrow White? It is. We've used some of that and we wrote some ourselves. A wonderful piece of animation here. I mean, this is such beautiful, subtle animation that we're looking at to make this face of Gollum's feel so emotional like this. Yes. Great work. What's really interesting about this scene to me is that it starts off with Frodo very much at a disadvantage on the back foot, if you like, and Gollum almost taunting him about his knowledge of the ring and what it's doing to Frodo. Mm. And it, Frodo turns it because he too has knowledge as he starts to reveal that he, you know, what he's learned of Gollum's background and who he used to be and disarms him by the end of, of the scene. He's disarmed him quite considerably. And really, that's the time when we see this character of Schmeagel. It's kind of bringing him forth. Yeah. Another little secret of that scene, too, is that at the very end, when we go in close to Gollum's face, that was going to be a moment that we were going to go into a flashback Mm -hmm. of um, Schmeagel with his cousin Deagle, and we were going to show a three- or four-minute sequence, which Fran directed, which I know a lot of people have actually seen photos of in books and magazines. And... When we looked at it in that position, because that's where it was at the end of that scene, it was like went into a flashback and then it came out of a flashback as the Nazgul scream happened. We decided that the momentum of the film was getting a little bit too slow. And we also felt that we didn't know Gollum that well at this point in time, and to actually then learn a lot about his backstory was maybe slightly too premature. And so the decision was made to take that scene out, not put it back in the DVD extended version but to actually put it in the theatrical version of Return of the King so that's where people will be able to see it. Well, I don't think we ever really got the idea clearly across that the ring race that appear here are the same ring race that pursued them in the first film. I mean I don't know quite what people who, who haven't read the book really understand of this but what did happen is that when the horses and the race were swept away at the ford of Brunnen the horses died, but the wraiths didn't because they can't drown. You can't kill the wraiths that easily. And so this is the return of uh, one of those black riders of the nine that were in the first film, except this time they've obviously given up horses. They think horses aren't too flashy anymore, and they've got these amazing big winged beasts that they're now riding on. Yeah, the Nazgul were in the film and then out of the film and back in the film for a while. We weren't really sure about using them, were we? No, no. One of the things that's hard to do with the Nazgul, I find very hard, is that Tolkien's so great in the books about how they generate fear, that that, that if you're around them, you hear them, yeah. just their presence makes you terrified. And um, It's very hard to, to convey that in a movie. Fangorn that we're seeing in this sequence is a set that we built in an old warehouse right next to the airport. And uh, the days that we were shooting here were interrupted about every... Two minutes, two and a half minutes by 737s taking off about 50 feet away. It was like roaring. Um, The actors just had to keep on going. (laughs) And if you listen to the real sound, because obviously this soundtrack has been um, enhanced and changed and there's additional, you know, there's other dialogue been put over the top and so it's all been cleaned up. But the original location sound is just interrupted by the roar of aeroplanes all the time. They could have been Nazgul. Well, they could have been loud fell beasts, couldn't they? Yeah. Well, if we'd given the fell beasts the sound of 737s, it would have saved us a huge amount of bother. 
Now, didn't you flip a few shots around here so that Legolas's brooch jumps around? Oh, yeah, all over the place. I've well, we flipped. Did you? Mm. Oh, well, I, they, we flip shots all the no, time. You, all the time. All if you look time. throughout the whole movie, you see the brooches that they're wearing flip this, backwards and forwards. This scene's mentioned a lot, but I, I yeah. haven't noticed oh, it yet. Oh, well, it happens on dozens of times. It's weird because you shoot um, a scene a particular way and then when you're cutting it, you suddenly, instead of the actor looking out to the left, you want them looking out to oh, the right. Oh, it's flipped there. Oh, there you go. <laughs> it's an elvish brooch. It's magic. It is. What do you want? Do you want, do you want continuity? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> this scene is lifted pretty much straight out of the book, isn't it? It's a very memorable moment. I mean, it's nice. It's fun to shoot these scenes because... You know, while we adapt the book and we change things and we alter things and we do that quite a lot, occasionally you just hit those moments that are iconic moments that yeah. you want to just jump out of the page of the book directly. And uh, this is one of them, the return of Gandalf and Fangorn. Is, uh, I just wanted it to feel very authentic to the book. You did some trickery If you look here. very closely here, there's um, a visual trick because you see Christopher Lee's eyes very briefly here, they're actually glued onto Ian McKellen's face. If you look in these first two or three shots, they are Christopher Lee's eyes. And you also hear Christopher Lee's voice as well that's blended in with Ian's. Because we did want people, the uninitiated, to think that this was possibly Saruman for the first few seconds. Actually, you know what was interesting was Christopher Lee could imitate Ian McKellen better than Ian, I thought, imitated Chris Lee. Because they both tried to sound a little like each other to blur the, right, yeah. blur the things. Yeah, yeah, Chris yeah. Lee... Um, did a marvellous scene. There's one tiny line here that I put back in the DVD that we took out of the theatrical cut because it was too obscure, but when he says, I am Saruman, at least Saruman as he should have been, which I, I sort of, I kind of understand mm. it, but I love the, love the poetry of it. And we thought it was a bit obscure for the theatrical movie, but uh, I put it back in here because I like it. It's one for the fans. Yeah, one for me, really, I must admit. <laughs> You're a fan. This was the culmination of the Balrog fight. What actually happens in the book is that they plummet to the uh, bottom of the chasm and then they fight their way back up to the top of the mountain, which is the bit we've obviously skipped out here, but this is the ultimate climax. And Killing the Balrog was a difficult thing to visualise because, you know, how does a little guy with a sword take out a huge big monster like this? But I think with the help of a bit of lightning and flash and lights and stuff, and we sort of sold it. And I, the big plummeting down and the death fall in the landing, yeah. it really sells his death mm. better than anything that Gandalf can do with the sword, really. Was that a mini? It was a big miniature, yeah, the tower and the snow. Everything's fake in that shot. This sequence was debated a lot amongst ourselves in the studio. You know, you could have done without it, but on the other hand, I thought that just having Gandalf showing up as Gandalf the White needed some form of additional explanation. We had no idea really how to visualise this moment and the script it said something like death, birth, cosmic, weird and that was all that we ever wrote in the screenplay but rather than have it just dialogue I thought of some visuals to add support to this transformation and so you see the death of the Balrog and then you see this kind of weird metaphysical kind of transformation that he does. I had a whole other version in my mind of this sequence which uh, I took in a literal way from the book because it talks about him being naked in the snow and then later you realise that he shows up at Lothlorien and Galadriel, I think, gives him his white mm -hmm. robes. So I did think about the shot of a nude Gandalf walking through the Lorien woods <laughs> asking for directions to Galadriel and having sort of Kate Blanchett sort of drape his body in these new white robes, but then we thought, no, no. no that's, that's more like the Ring of the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> 
This is a scene that was drastically reduced in the theatrical cut, again for pacing reasons. And one of the background kind of themes that we did delete a lot of from the um, theatrical was the whole story of Fangorn and the trees. And this was good stuff for setting up the concept that the forest coming alive and that it'll be dangerous and that the Ents, who are basically don't get involved in the affairs of the outside world are going to um, realise that their strength is actually needed and you know Gandalf refers to all of this in the scene and in a lot of the scenes we've added to the extended cut that is actually a lot of that material is related to Fangorn and the trees coming alive. This was done as a pickup shoot wasn't it? It was directed by you Fan. There was one funny take where Ian whacked his nose with his staff and it wobbled. <laughs> what, the staff or the nose? His nose. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was rubber. Mm. Ian is wearing a rubber nose, if you didn't realise. It's one of the things that I remember having a bit of an argument with him about at the very beginning when he arrived in New Zealand, because you imagine you're an actor, you know, you come to New Zealand to play a character for 15 months over three films, and you have this discussion about whether you should wear a rubber nose or not. If you do you're going to have to get out two hours earlier in the morning every day for 15 months and go have your nose glued on. It wasn't so much a debate whether the nose was a good idea or not because we did do a test and he did look good in his nose, but he, um, he was very much against the idea of doing it because of what it would mean for the next year and a half. But fortunately, Ian being an incredibly generous actor, I uh, put up a spirited argument and then gave up. <laughs> which was very, I was very thankful for, because he does, it does help his appearance as Gandalf, I think. Now this horse is a horse called Demiro, um, trained by Don Reynolds, an American horse trainer that we brought to New Zealand, especially to work with Shadowfax, and um, it's called uh, Liberty Training, in which the horse doesn't have any bridles or reins, and it responds to voice commands. And this is done in one shot, there is no visual effects here. Shadowfax, or Demiro, was way over the hill, and then Don called him, and he galloped right up to Ian McKellen here. And um, I couldn't believe it when I saw the cameras rolling on the shot. It goes right up to Ian in one take. It was fantastic. Why did he go up to Ian? Because he'd been trained to, and there was a little wooden board that he'd been trained to put his front feet on, and the little wooden board was on the ground in front of Ian. And the mirror just ran up and put his, his front hooves on that wooden board. Such a beautiful horse. Now this scene in the theatrical version was a sort of a slightly different form. It, was, it had some of the same content but it was much shorter and this is the full length version of the scene which, um, which we made a lot funnier and it was the one thing that I wished we could have hung on to actually is um, Treebeard's poetry because it kind of gives the character an unexpected humorous slant which uh, I think the theatrical would have probably benefited from it a bit but it was slow and it was something that, you know, when we were dealing with a film that we had to get down to three hours was just something we, we decided that we could do without. I think it's lovely and it's a real nod towards Professor Tolkien's own love of poetry. Yeah, bad poetry or good poetry? <laughs> we, well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people have criticised... We're, we're Merry and Pippin, so that, that, so that's... A, lo a lot of people have criticised Treebeard for being a bit slow. You know how a lot of reviews mm. said that Treebeard was kind of slow and boring? And what this scene does is it sort of celebrates the fact he's slow and boring and it makes a, a humorous yeah. point of it, which I, I think actually would have, the film would have benefited from that because then you would have got it, you would have thought, oh, okay, all right, this guy is slow and boring and accepted it more mm. rather than it being sort of an irritant. Um, Who said he was slow and boring? Oh, there's, there's all sorts of reviews have said that. Some of them, I mean, the bad reviews have said that. The good reviews like him. Yeah. 
love that shot. So in a shot like this, you see you've got uh, Dominic and Billy are actually riding on a big prosthetic creature that Richard Taylor's guys made, and we replaced just the head with a computer-generated head. Everything else is is rubber. There's a big rubber rig. They were lowered down on wires, um, and then the wires were painted out in Treebeard's arms, where it in the computer. And this is stuff's all about Treebeard and the forest, because I think if you don't know the the lore of the forest that Tolkien wrote, you know, you get confused with what Treebeard actually is. People obviously think he's a tree, but Ents are not trees. They're sort of like humanoid creatures who obviously look like trees, but they are shepherds of the forest, and the forest is a whole other form of life the natural trees, which are actually very dangerous. They're called the Huons. In the book, mm-hmm. they have a, a name, which we never really use in the film. And the Ents are there to look after the trees and make sure the trees don't get to any mischief or they don't you know, have any harm done to them. They're actually there as protectors of the trees. And they're two very different species. This was us thinking that maybe if, if we gave all the exposition in one great watch to Ian McKellen, he'd leverage it off the page. And just tell everybody what the film was about. <laughs> it's one of those scenes where, where it's we like, always did that let's, explain the, well, let's explain what this film's about. Yeah. And in the end, we didn't use it. No. no. <laughs> no God, that was pages and pages, and he just did it so brilliantly. He did do it brilliantly. This was filmed in a, um Apple warehouse in a very tiny New Zealand town. Um, it was raining. We were shooting some scenes outside Dimrul. Dale for the Fellowship of the Ring when they come out of the Mines of Mornia it was absolutely pouring with rain and so we retreated into this old warehouse we couldn't build a set so that's why there's no set there it's just some smoke behind them and we <laughs> shot the scene uh, while the rain was hammering down on the tin roof but at least we got a few pages shot that day when it was pouring yeah. with rain we have one advantage this scene uh, serves a purpose in the sense that it does really um, focus Gandalf as the enemy of Sauron and that He's very much reliant upon Aragorn to help him, mm. to be his ally. And the fact that he's saying to Aragorn, well, you know, Sauron now knows about you and he's basically going to be coming after you too. You're a marked man. You've got to now fight back. It's time now for war, really. It is, you know, telling Aragorn that now is the hour. Some of the shots in this scene, um, we saw with horror that Ian's rubber nose had gone black. You remember that? We had to use our computer to recolor his nose because for some reason the lighting um, mm. that we were using didn't bounce too well off the rubber and it made his nose look black. Yes, I just can't have Gandalf like with blackheads. No, we had nose rot problems. Did you have nose rot? There was a tense week where we were waiting on the verdict from Wetter as to whether they could recolorize his nose or we had to reshoot. Right. Now, what I remember about this scene in particular is if you've seen the um, the Fellowship of the Ring DVD, you would have seen Sean Astin stepping on a broken bottle in that lake and getting his foot pierced and having to have stitches. Well, this scene was shot the ne- very next day. And we were down the South Island in a very tiny little gymnasium in a local town, and we just built this rock summit, which was in front of blue screens. And Sean could not really walk on his foot. He should have been in bed, but he was a great trooper and he didn't want to hold up the filming, so he came in with his foot swollen to all hell, stitched up. And if you look at what he does in this scene, he just kind of gingerly walks his way around the rocks and goes and lies down. And he was in a huge amount of pain the whole day that we were filming this. We can't get past that. This was funny. Fran and I, we would often go in and look at models that Weta was doing when we were writing and... 
This was before even we started filming, and uh, one day Richard brought us to the uh, this particular miniature that they'd been building, and I looked at it and I, I said, why have you got two gates? And he said, well, that's what you'd written, and I realised that we'd done a typo in there, because, of course, it's the black gate, not gates, but that's because of a little typo, and that's how they became two. I love the idea that these gates are so huge that they get pushed open and they creak and they groan. And uh, I'm just really pleased with the scene. I'm really pleased with the way it came out. It's just like pure fantasy to me. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just like what fantasy should be in the sense of these creatures and these enormous structures. The Black Gate's very much taken out of an illustration that Alan Lee did in the book about 10 years ago. If you look at the illustrated edition of The Lord of the Rings where Alan did 50 watercolour paintings, you very much see the genesis of the design of the film because those paintings were so inspirational to us and I really just wanted something that looked exactly like the painting. Very early on we realised that this was going to be this incredible moment. We knew Peter was going to make it amazing and we felt that if we were going to have these incredible gates that we had to put someone down there because it was no good just having them at this huge distance staring down at them. So that's what this was It was, was partly about. what the paintings inspired too, because mm. I remember looking at Adeline's painting from the book, you know, long before we shot the film, and looking at them hiding up there, and you imagine, well, what would happen if, if they actually, if those soldiers of the march exactly. saw, saw them or thought they, thought they saw them, and you're suddenly creating little sequences in your mind that are inspired from the artwork. This was the use of the elven cloaks. It was something that we found difficult in the film to do. In the book, the elven cloaks that they were given at Lothlorien have a very magical quality in which they camouflage and blend into anything that they're surrounding. So if they're against rocks, then the cloaks are grey. If they're against trees, then the cloaks are green. And we could never really do that properly in the film. And this is almost like tipping our hat, the only time really that we ever do it, to this elven, special elven cloak. But I remember this day when Gollum grabbed Frodo and Sam to stop them going. Remember that take that um, Andy Circus was there grabbing them and he grabbed Sean's hair and he pulled his wig off? Yes. There's a great blooper where Sam's hair just gets ripped off by Andy Circus. And I don't think Sean was too happy, actually. What was the name of that, that little hall where you shot the top of them? Because I remember... The top was shot in Manapuri. In Manapuri. And it was like a little in the community hall, hall school yeah. hall for place, yeah. I remember turning up there, and there you were shooting the Black Gates of Mordor, yeah. and on the, on the the um, there was a notice posted on the door, no place entered today, Lord of the Rings shooting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it was. It was, it was so just, we, just a bigger place enter. Yeah, really. exactly. Some of these huge scenes we were able to shoot on tiny places because most of it's against blue screen. I mean, you literally just have a couple of fiberglass rocks and a blue screen, and that's all that you need. So even though there's a big vista, you can actually shoot this stuff in a very small space. So it's ideal to cart these scenes around the country with you. They're called weather cover scenes, which basically means if you're filming outside and you could be anywhere, um, and it happens to be a raining day and you can't do what you're supposed to do, you rush to the nearest shed and you kind of spend the day doing one of these scenes. In the last few minutes, we've been to gymnasiums, squash courts, apple storage rooms. <laughs> I mean, as you can see, we don't really have film studios in New Zealand, but we do have sheds. Kind of demystifies Mordor, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, 
This is another beat in the story of the relationship and the way in which the relationship between Frodo, Sam and Gollum changes and evolves. And this is the moment when instead of listening to Sam, Frodo chooses to follow Gollum or Schmeagel. And it's very significant. And, and these points and the way in which that relationship developed were very carefully plotted out by us. In a film that was, you know, fairly unrelentingly grim, intense, which The Two Towers is, we did think that we should lighten it up and we should have some more whimsy. And obviously Merry and Pippin and the forest and tree bed are, are wonderful material for that. And a lot of this is in the book. Hello. And we love the idea of this, um, this scene with the ent draft, which is basically this stream of this magical water that runs through Fangorn. And the hobbits um, discover that they actually grow an inch or two if they drink it. I guess it must be all the vitamins and chemicals in the fangorn <laughs> he says soil. That. He does in the book. It's yeah. in the book. It's about that. Yeah, it's like the, the first health yeah. um, mineral Tonic. water. I mean, God, if I could bottle that now, they'd make a fortune, wouldn't they? We also loved the idea of them feeling that three foot eight would actually be quite tall, <laughs> which was where this came from. And it's one of the, the interrupt is one of those moments in the book that for some bizarre reason a lot of people remember. They just remember it. They do. Yeah. They do. It's almost it's the flip side of the horrible brown liquid that yeah. that the orcs pour down Mary's throat earlier, isn't it? It's like this is the crystal clear, beautiful, magical... But no, it's green. In, yeah. in, the, in the book it is, isn't it? Yes. It's glowing mm. green. We, we didn't do that here. Why didn't we do that? I was going to ask that. Probably due to budgetary constraints. <laughs> budgetary constraints. Well, we couldn't afford some food colouring. You're the short I love these two. It's also the the relationship between these two as actors and, and both Dom and Billy know each other so well now and work together so brilliantly and it's neat to be able to see them doing that and this scene shows that. It's a shame that the first thing that gets cut, you know, for Link's reasons is always comedy, isn't it? Yeah. It's always the light-hearted stuff because you just realise that this is not critical to the plot and when you're out on an assassination mission to try to get rid of scenes that aren't critical to the plot, you know. Mm. This wasn't in the book. This doesn't actually happen in the book, um, but it is our homage to Old Man Willow. Yes, it is. A very, very evocative scene from the Fellowship of the Ring where the hobbits get captured by this tree in a completely different forest. Here we wanted to use it because we wanted to try to establish simply that there are trees and there are ants. And there's actually a reason why this is here, and it is to show that the forest itself, the trees are coming alive and getting very angry, and mm. the Ents are having to deal with that situation and that building tension. And also that you can talk and talk about the forest is growing dangerous, but it's really great to see it and show Yeah, it. yeah, things are always and much better in movies when you see them and yeah. you're, not, you're not just spoken about. For fans of the book will recognise Treebeard's lines as actually being part of an, another iconic character. This is taken straight from what Tom Bombadil says to send old man Willow to sleep. Tom Bombadil lives. Yes, he does, and we did and that we quite accused, deliberately. We were we, accused we, of yeah, killing him. We figured we Tom wouldn't mind if um, Treebeard took his lines. I do love this scene. I mean, this was another favourite scene. I, I really did want to try to hang on to this stuff for the theatrical version. I love them talking about the Ent Wives. It's kind of just, you know, it's a shame. Anyway, it's here. Hey, we shouldn't mourn it too much. We have DVDs. Thank heavens for technology. 
But I am very happy with the way that the extended cut DVDs are now fleshing out the trilogy. This one was, I think, about 43 minutes longer than the theatrical version. And, you know, I think the extra material that's in here, particularly things like Merry and Pippin and Fangorn and the, and the, um, the Ent stuff, it, it, it helps ultimately create a trilogy which, which is much more detailed and has the moments of, of has the, the pacing that you, that you kind of, you want it to be as a complete story that it can't be when you, you're sort of facing a, having to make a theatrical film one, one, once a year that kind of has a momentum and a pace that attracts people to the cinema. And in terms of character, I think what's great about this scene, and it is really, really funny that he's forgotten and it's been so long, but it is also playing to the fact that, that the Ents have turned away from the rest of the world, which is what we want we wanted to establish that they that they've been in their little forest and and have sort of begun become so isolated from the outside world. Edoras was built in a location in the South Island of New Zealand and we built the buildings at the very top of the hill. The rest of the village is just CG buildings, but the mountain is real. The rock that you're seeing standing up out of the um, countryside is absolutely the way it really is and the buildings on top are completely authentic. It was a very difficult build because the winds in that valley are so high that they can blast building materials off the top of the hill. Um, it's actually quite dangerous. We had to anchor the buildings down deep into, into concrete, drill into the rock and, and put huge big concrete piles into the rock to even just build the set there. Didn't they paint it and then you came back and all the paint had been stripped because of yeah, the Yeah, well, I was shooting at Edoras <laughs> one day. I mean, what happened to me one day is very high winds and I was walking along to where the crew were and my glasses got blown off my face and I turned and I just saw them sailing and tumbling over the cliff in the wind and I had to spend the rest of the day kind of with blurry vision. It was weird. It was uh, quite a very vicious kind of climate. The audition piece for Erwin was about four pages of almost undiluted text from the book and it was a very, very difficult read. A lot of people were struggling with it. And we hadn't found Erwin, had we? Mm. She was a big, big search. But I remember Fran very, very early on had been tracking Miranda and keeping her in mind and had asked her to come in and read. Miranda was the only person who actually rang and wanted to talk about this character and what the scene actually meant. She then went in and did it, and I think I remember we were in Queenstown, Mark Odeski, Fran, Peter and myself, and we saw her tape and we knew we'd found her. We'd finally found Ewan. One of the things when Brad came down and we were working through the journey that Wormtongue goes on, Fran had a strong instinct that rather than just be this out-and-out villain, that there is a very genuine need and desire for Erwin, and that he actually, in his own way, does love her. And that is brought out in this incredible moment at the end of the scene, when they look at each other, and you can actually see that. That's just one of the great strengths of Brad as an actor. And why we gave him this piece of text, which Tolkien fans will know is actually lines of Gandalf's that come towards the end of the third book, certainly towards the end of her story. The reason he's saying them here is because one of the other things we wanted to do in this scene is show that he actually has an understanding of her, that he does understand a part of her. And in this moment where she looks at him, there is for one split second a chance where she may actually go there and seek solace. And this is part of his power. And the other thing in this scene, her final words, for those who know the book, your words are poison. 
is of course a play on the fact that she's a little bit more accurate than even she knows. This was one of the blowy, windy days up there. Since there's no visual effects in this shot, it's exactly what you see from the top of the hill. Everything that you're seeing here is what we built, including the Golden Hall. You know, normally we would have had to have done a computer effects shot for when this flag rips away and blows in the wind. We would have had a little CG flag. We just had this incredible luck and the flag ripped off. We made it rip off, but then the flag blowing in the wind and going over the rooftops is done for real. It just happened. It was so windy that it did a perfect flight path for what we wanted for the shot. We had a helicopter rig to shoot from up at Edoris, but it was so windy when we were there filming that we didn't get many good shots. And the one that you're looking at here was actually shot while we were building the set because we had a helicopter with a camera fly nearby. And I said to them, why don't you just roll a bit of film to show me how the set's coming along? And it was a lovely, smooth, beautiful shot, but the set was unfinished. And so we had to do a lot of CG enhancement to take away construction, cranes, safety fences, and to actually complete the set. So it was ironic that we built the set, but the CG shot had to actually <laughs> fill in the holes because it was only half finished when we happened to shoot the aerials. I didn't know that. Yeah. Always hard to do peasants in films, isn't it? You always think of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. <gasps> Bring out your dead! Bring <laughs> out your dead! <laughs> it's rather one of those dodgy things, uh, the sort of... Monty Python kind of has been a real difficulty with us making this film because you realise just how close the line is between the Holy Grail and the Lord of the Rings, really, in terms of what we're trying to do and show on screen. This is a frivolous scene, and we did actually talk about cutting the scene out at one stage. You don't need it. It's a bit of business that sort of is not important, but it's quite memorable from the book. I like the idea that Aragorn keeps finding weapons everywhere. Yeah. You would not part an old man. One of the problems that we had um, with visualising this is that Gandalf asks to keep his staff still, but we didn't want him to walk into the hall with the staff, sort of fully obvious, because why didn't Wormtongue see it kind of right at the beginning? And so if you look here, Ian very carefully kind of carries his staff in a way that it doesn't draw attention to itself, because otherwise why does, doesn't Wormtongue jump up now and say that with his staff? See the continuity problem? The staff's upright in the back shots and it's down in the front shots. I never noticed that. No, I didn't notice it before now too. Oh God, it's live on DVD. A problem has been spotted. How long did that makeup take? That took quite a long time. It was like half a day in the makeup chair. It's not prosthetics, rubber prosthetics. It's actually done an old-fashioned way, which is called stipple makeup, of basically applying like tissue paper to your face and putting grease paint over it. This whole aspect of the politics in the Golden Hall, I, I've always found quite difficult because, what's the attitude of the people of Rohan to Wormtongue to their sick king? Why don't the loyal lieutenants of Theoden actually boot Wormtongue out if he's clearly that? poisonous a character. So we created these thuggish characters, like these henchmen, that you had to somehow believe that Wormtongue plus the henchmen were enough of a force to suppress the Rohan civilians. Obviously not quite enough of a force to suppress our heroes. Remember we had the problem with Gandalf the White not appearing as Gandalf the White yeah, until yeah. this moment when he, That's right. he takes his cloak off. And then uh, we figured, well, what does, what's he wearing then? Is he back into Gandalf yes, the Grey gear? It was all a bit difficult, this stuff, to It was really quite difficult. Travis mad. One of the things that's great about Lord of the Rings is Gandalf doesn't get to be a wizard very much, which I actually appreciate because wizards are not that 
kind of easy, but this is in a way just about his most wizardy bit of the whole movie mm. and maybe of the whole, whole trilogy. That you know, like this is straight out of a fairy tale, really. The good wizard fighting the bad spell. The book has, you know, a rather vague description of exactly what's happening to Thet, and he is some way being heavily influenced by Wormtung. He's somehow been under some sort of spell because Gandalf does come in and kind of free him from the spell, but showing it in a movie without being hokey was kind of tough, and we haven't really explained it that much other than that connection so that when Theoden gets sort of blasted by Gandalf's staff, it's Saruman that we see being rocketed across the floor in Orthanc. So that connection that somehow Saruman was puppeteering Theoden and the use of the voice that we hear, actually Christopher Lee did some ADR, some dialogue recordings, so we hear Christopher's voice coming out of Bernard's mouth at one point and that was the way that we kind of tried to address the situation of a spell and enchantment because those things are difficult to show visually. Sound design is very important here because all that Bernard's doing is obviously just throwing himself back in his chair and Ian's just pushing his staff forward. There's no contact between the two of them, but the sound design really gives a feeling of power coming out of the staff. The shot here was done as a very simple morphing needed Bernard to go through three different makeups, each of which took half a day. So we basically shot him over the course of two days as the old makeup, the intermediate, and then the young. He was sort of sitting being in either the makeup chair or in front of the camera for literally for two days just to do that seven or eight seconds worth of film that we were able to morph with that de-aging. I know your face. Bernard Hill's an actor that made a huge impression on me when I was a lot younger in a, a British TV series called Boys from the Black Stuff. Since then, he's obviously the captain of the Titanic, so you wouldn't want to put him in charge of a sailing vessel. <laughs> but for the King of Rohan, I thought he'd be great. He has that wonderful nobility, and he's also the type of actor who can take the role of a king and play him without the usual cliches as well. He's a very clever actor, and you need somebody who's going to actually give the character that integrity and not just do a king. This is where the Rohan theme comes in again, isn't it? With Howard's, with the Norwegian fiddle and... Yeah. Very memorable. Yes. What I like about Gandalf's role in this scene is he is a manipulator. And that is one of the key character functions, is that he manipulates people into doing what he wants them to do. The way that he says, well, you know, you may remember your strength better if you grasp your sword because he wants now to deal with Wormtongue. It's like Gandalf has it in for Wormtongue. But he has to get Theoden there in a, in a way that he suggests and hints and Theoden finally gets the idea himself that holding the sword, thinking of why he was subjected to the spell, he goes there. But Gandalf is totally manipulating the situation from the beginning. And that is quite a fun aspect of Gandalf's character. The character of Wormtongue, our take on it, came from Theoden's speech at the end of book Two Towers where he says, you were a man once. He was not born evil and he is not wholly evil now, that there is something in him that can be appealed to and possibly redeemed. And in that, he rises above stereotype and becomes a more complex and interesting character, someone who perhaps has allowed the more weaker and ignoble sides of his character to take free reign, but also someone who can have some hope of change. I certainly saw in Wormtongue this character who was trapped within his own sense of kind of moral turpitude, but who wanted something else. And it wasn't just a venal desire. It was something as sort of unattainable as Erwin's. He also wanted Theoden's approval. 
and he wanted to, and needed to be part of the court. And his expulsion from that compounded a bitter sense of rejection, which in his own mind justified the further attacks on the people of Rohan and you know, Helm's Deep. When we originally shot the scene with Adam, we didn't have any connection with the death of his son. We did have a funeral scene, but there wasn't any link. And so we had Bernard back out in New Zealand during post-production and we shot this one insert shot of him turning around and saying, where is Theodred, where is my son? Which was a way of being able to then head towards the funeral scene which is coming up. We wanted to use something which is echoed in a lot of different cultures, but particularly in Māori culture as well, that the body is taken by the men and handed to the women which is what we've got here. The women are waiting by the grave to receive the body and they're the ones who actually put the body of Theodred into the tomb. This big crowd shot is a crowd duplication shot where we had about 100 extras and we spent four or five hours shifting them around from place to place. We had a motion control camera so we just repeated the camera move. So the first part of the shot had the body being carried in the foreground and with about you know 100 extras nearby and then we just kept repeating the shot and we had the extras moving around just moving from one quadrant to the next until we actually shot about eight different passes of them so we turned 100 extras into 800 extras and we used the computer to composite them all together. The song that Alwyn is singing here was written by David Salo who was, had primarily acted as a translator into Elvish, being an expert in Old English. When we came to choosing a language for the Rahiram, we decided to use Old English. There's very little extant language written for the Rahiram by Professor Tolkien. And this particular piece was written by David Salo for this burial, using a little bits and pieces of Beowulf, actually, the great poem. I always love the name Symbol Muna, which is the name that Tolkien gave to those white flowers. And they, they're flowers that only grow on the graves of the dead. Mm -hmm. And I kind of always thought that was a pretty amazing thing, which is why I wanted to feature them here. There's no real reason for it, but it's kind of a neat idea. This was an authentic shot. It's no CG involved with that big crane up. It just shows you how remote this location really was, because it is literally that remote. There's no buildings much within about a 30-mile radius of where we are here. We're right in the, the heart of the mountains of the Southern Alps. But the flowers are completely artificial, right? But the flowers are artificial. The flowers are... No, we, don't The flowers it. were just those, those little bits of white cloth, actually, like white silk. And the other thing that came as a shock was the pronunciation of... We always thought it was symbol, symbol moon, moon, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. And then we had symbol to adjust. Symbol or something. I think. Yeah, we yeah. had to adjust to this. I'm the worst guy to ask about late read on it, which I was uh, we never liked as much. I didn't like it as much. No. That great line, um, "No parent should have to bury their child," came from Bernard, actually. Yeah, he does a great job. He'd spend all day with Gabriel, his son, running around playing on the side of that set. Again, off the white, we had to uh, make more vibrant, more sort of energetic. He does get more likeable in the third movie. I mean, he's a bit mm -hmm. of a dry character in The Two Towers. He sort of comes back, he's changed, he's not quite the affectionate sort of Gandalf that we like from The Fellowship. And he tends to loosen up a little bit and um, has definitely some much more humorous and intimate moments in the next movie. But here he's like 
it's almost like a cameo, really. I mean, Gandalf's appearance in The Two Towers is like an extended cameo to some degree. He's about, you know, he doesn't arrive till late and he's about to disappear for a huge part of the film until the very end. So. I think what I liked about what Ian did was he gave Gandalf the wider sense of urgency and immediacy and he's come back at the turn of the tide and he took that at his cue, that he has so very little time to do so very much in defence of Middle-earth against Sauron. And here's another aspect of Gandalf, the manipulator. And what Ian wanted to do, it was Ian's idea that he sit beside the throne and he's basically replaced Wormtongue. And he liked the idea mm. that Gandalf really is just another version of Wormtongue. <laughs> oh, he's, no, you, know, you can't say that. He's a persuader, not a manipulator. No, well, whatever. Yeah. One person's persuading is another person's <laughs> manipulation. Oh, no, I'll never be able to look at Gandalf the same way again. Bernard was originally an actor we were considering for Gandalf way back at the beginning. And we obviously didn't ultimately choose him for Gandalf, but we wanted to work with him, basically, and thought he'd be great for that. And There's a great example of just what John Rhys-Davies brings to these scenes, too, because, you know, Gimli had nothing to do, which is, for an actor, an incredibly difficult thing. I mean, what did Gimli do? Well, he just got to sit there and eat, except John somehow almost manages to steal the scene without, without doing anything which is kind of a gift for a director. You know, when I'm cutting the scene and I come across something like this, this little burp that he does, it's, it just somehow adds something to the scene, well, which is totally what John's doing. isn't he? I mean, he undermines the, the sort of... The, the pompousness. Yes, yeah. he does. By order yeah. of the king, they flee to the mountains... This is a pick-up where they're walking in the stable doors. We're now jump forward two years. Um, they were walking across the courtyard in Edoras on location. Two years later, they walk into the stables in our pickups for a whole scene that we wrote um, after we edited the film together and we didn't really have a strong enough reason for Gandalf to suddenly walk out of the story um, in what we originally wrote and shot. So we sort of designed this scene as a way of trying to explain his departure, trying to give Aragorn a mission because basically, you know, we wanted Aragorn to definitely have a role to play that the audience were very much aware of. So it is protect the people of Rohan. And then we also just snuck in this very nice little tease where Gandalf says those lines, look for my coming on the fifth day, at dawn on the fifth day. And it was a sense that Gandalf has a, an agenda that we don't know about, mm. but it's obviously something we use later to pay off. Unfortunately, in the original Japanese translation, they actually had Gandalf saying, look for me on the fifth day, I will return with Emir. <laughs> Oh, did, did they? Yes. They gave it away. Yeah, well, I think they just didn't understand what we were trying to do. We were right. too obscure. We changed some of the motivations around in this area of the story because Aragorn is very enthusiastic about going to Helm's Deep in the book, except here we made Helm's Deep kind of like a bad strategic move. Because we did actually write initially a version which was quite close to the book. It was laid out before Gandalf, it was laid out before Aragorn, it was laid out before Thad, and it was all just basically said, right, we're going to go, we're going to hole up in Helm's Deep, and we're going to make our last stand there. And it was laid out for the audience, therefore, and that doesn't play on film, unfortunately. It didn't give us much room for journey and for reversals, especially, I think, for Théoden's reversal. Uh, because, of course, as people stay in Edoras in the book, but we felt we had to put people in the most jeopardy we could to give some value and some stake underneath Elm's Deep. The horse that Vigo's trying to calm down here, it's supposed to be the horse that belonged to Thad and Son that we saw dying. It's a horse that doesn't really appear in the books at all, but we knew that Vigo had to be 
picked up by a horse when he was um, left for dead after the wag scene which is coming up and so we wanted to somehow establish a bond between him and this horse which comes to save him. Ultimately, when we did the theatrical cut, that seemed like unnecessary setup. but it's a nice scene that does show how Aragorn's raising with the elves and his connection with... Um, mm, that's what it was with about. That, ...with horses as a, as a ranger. He starts off in this scene speaking in Old English and then switches to Elvish halfway through. There's very little time in the way the story is told for connection between Aelin and Aragorn, and yet somehow this woman who initially starts off as very distant and reserved begins to see something else in this man and begins to see him as something else and somebody she can relate to. She's so closed off from other men, but she begins to be drawn into this man's power. So we were just trying to find moments where we could do this. It's a computer-generated horse and rider riding down a model of Isengard. And this is an extra scene for the DVD that we didn't use it in the theatrical cut, but it's basically giving Saruman the information that Aragorn, the supposed lost king, is out and about. It was ultimately information that we didn't think Saruman needed to know. We see sort of between Aragorn being Saruman's adversary and Gandalf being Saruman's adversary in terms of the typical antagonist-protagonist thing, and that was when we wanted Aragorn to become Saruman's adversary, the guy he's going to take out, but it was premature. It was the first scene we ever shot with Wormtongue. It's weird when you do scenes out of order because you see how he's dabbing his cut lip with a handkerchief. We figured that he'd probably have a cut lip from being thrown down the stairs, even though we hadn't actually filmed that yet. And as it is, when you see him thrown down the stairs, you don't really get the idea that he cuts his lip at all. <laughs> no. But here, because we were shooting this first, we just were guessing, really. Sometimes we were doing things like six months ahead of the next scene and because we were shooting three films at once. We had no idea what we were doing. Mixed up. What I love in that scene is when he starts picking the scab on his scalp, and that was one of those things where Peter King and Peter Owen had designed this very thin wig it's like he had psoriasis on the scalp yeah. and then he started picking at it it was one of those genius and, and, moments and did he eat it because <laughs> that's what you want to happen if somebody's picking at the oh, scalp you no, want them to a, sort of like little crunchy chippies or something brain dead once reduced your personal habits <laughs> this scene here really shows you the great fashion sense of rohan the color and variety <laughs> well theoden's obviously got the most expensive gloves in the entire kingdom that's and what gets to do. show them off. That's <laughs> why they're in the state they're in. It's the amount of money this guy spent on his clothes. It bankrupted the kingdom. They could they could do with a gap branch opening up in uh, Idris, couldn't they? They sort of need something to get away from the browns and greens. And look what the poor woman is reduced to. This was a quick rewrite, wasn't it? Quick rewrite, get it to the actors, shoot it. Is it one of those slippers under the hotel door, 10 o'clock at night before we shoot it? This was based around wanting to get that great dialogue in of what is it you fear, my lady? A cage, stay behind bars. But you had that very strong instinct that it had to be more than that. We also loved that line, remember, though the women of this country learnt long ago, those without swords can still die those upon them. Those without swords can still die upon them. I think this scene more than any other captures her spirit. Yeah, it does. It's more true to her. This mm. is, I think, Miranda's favourite. I think he's really spunky in this scene. It's also the scene where you see that she falls in love with him. It's quite a credible moment, really. Is that why I got tossed yeah. out of the scene? Any of the spunky, the spunky Aragorn scenes get directed by Fran, yeah. with Philippa hovering in the wings, sort of drooling. Actually, and I get, I, I get to go off and shoot some guy... golem stuff or something. Yeah, 
I want some guy to say that to me. Do you? Yeah. A shield maiden of Rohan. Well, I'll we'll say it to you. Melt, wouldn't you melt? Well, you did go what, through. Do, you, do you want us to make you a suit of chain mail? Kind of <laughs> yes. To get you a sword. I and... am Erwin, Franz Arwen. All of the extras at Edoras were basically local farmers and their wives. Because this is a very rural part of New Zealand, there's not really any towns or cities close by, and so we, we had all these extras were brought in from the various farming communities within a sort of 50-mile radius of the set. Well, they were amazing. They got up at 2 in the morning to get on a bus in Christchurch to be driven t- the to location, the set, yeah, yeah, and that would be two or three hours of travel, yeah. and then they would be in wardrobe and makeup at 6 in the morning or something, ready yeah. to set by 7.30. So they really didn't sleep, those extras. No, they were fantastic. This is a wonderful shot. John Mahaffey um, shot this. I just thought it was the most beautiful image. All done for real. Are they very high mountain lakes, those? Well, there's this place in Queenstown in New Zealand, if anyone ever goes there, called Deer Park Heights, which is like a a bit of a wildlife sanctuary, and it's just this mountain top. It's a hill right next to Queenstown Airport, and we did a lot of our filming at Deer Park Heights because you drive up there, it's very easy access, only five minutes from town, and you're basically sitting in this rugged, hilly landscape with cliffs and lakes and... 360 degrees around you are snowy mountains and it's where we shot all of the wag fight shot actually seems even for the return of the king a shot there that was andy circus actually going into that mountain river, river in the middle of winter He's freezing mad. cold freezing cold like there was snow there it was um it was below zero there's not left in but lies and deceit this location is a good example of a simple art department that we were filming in this slightly bushy kind of landscape. We just had a truck that used to drive around with pieces of polystyrene ruins. And it's actually the ruins that we're using in this scene are the weathertop ruins. That When we did the weathertop, we sort of saved the set because it had some quite nice polystyrene carved archways. Mm. When we wanted to dress up this location, make it look like a little bit ancient with the ruins, we just got the old weathertop bits and pieces and just stuck them in the ground. Nothing. We were shooting this in the North Island of New Zealand on an army artillery range and we were filming it at the weekend and we thought there wasn't going to be anything there. We obviously had permission to go there but just at the moment that Sean said the line, it's the ring, this huge artillery shell exploded about 500 yards away and everybody just thought it was a huge shock. We were rolling the film and you see Elijah who flinches at the sound of this huge explosion but then just kind of carries on acting like he's a real trooper. It was also kind of nervous because it was right on the edge of of an active volcano and when you suddenly have this huge ground-shaking explosion happen, my initial thought was the volcano had just blown up. It shows you how stressed out I was at the time. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a scene that Fran directed, so... You should talk about it, Fran. Well, we shot this scene in the pickup shoot a couple of years after the original footage. There wasn't any original footage in this scene. In fact, it was always new. And it was very much a part of the development on the Gollum Smeagol story. It's where the two personas properly engage. You come to know the, the level of persecution that Smeagol as the, the sort of younger more dependent self regularly inflicted on him by this rather sadistic parent. I, that's how I viewed it. That Gollum in some form has been both a protector and a tormentor to this other side of himself for hundreds of years. And he's both the reason they survived and also for his current state of misery. He's a repository of rage and hate. And there is something in Smeagol still that lets 
the audience know, and Frodo, that indicates to us he can be still redeemed, that there is something in him that is likeable and is of us. In another way, I, I saw that Gollum's like the monkey on, on everybody's shoulders. He's the voice of derision and failure. That self-hatred. He's self-hatred, and most people have that to contend with them to some degree or other. He's the celebrating. No, he's the la- he's the guy who celebrates other people's loss, you know, or your own sense of loss. He's yeah. it's not really an unfamiliar thing, this division of selves. I think it's for most people it's something that's kind of creepily familiar to us. I think that's why we kind of warm to him. Mm. That scene actually came out of this whole need for Frodo to be invested in saving Gollum and drawing Schmeagel out, having a creature that was worth saving. And this is the payoff, that you actually, for a brief moment, believe that Frodo was going to do it. I remember we realised that we didn't have this and Fran went away and wrote this amazing scene, which was extraordinary because it had levels of humour and it turns. As soon as he says murderer, yep. the laughter it, kind of stops and people does, feel, real, they feel real compromised and real sorry for it. Exactly. When Fran shot the scene with Andy, he did all the transitions between the character, and he actually did it as a continuous take, if you can believe it. He did it as one continuous piece of performance, and he was Schmeagel, Gollum, Schmeagel, Gollum, without stopping, one to the other, and he'd do the transitions in between so that he'd turn his head, head, Gollum would emerge, he'd be Gollum, then he'd turn back and become Schmeagel again. And he put all those transitions into it, but when we edited the scene together, we found that it got really unnerving if you just edited the transitions out. So it became a much tighter conversation between the two characters without seeing the change and then occasionally we'd show it just to mm. remind people what was happening but when you just cut directly from a Gollum Schmeagel and they were in a slightly different position with different expressions it really kind of became a bit unnerving which was a fun scene to cut in actual fact. And it's in moments like this stupid fat hobbit there's an unexpected comedy there because Sam reacts to being called fat which <laughs> which I think kind of shifts it out of being any kind of animated character oh, into tiny. just two people in a scene having an interaction it kind of takes it right out of any sense of there's actually something of Andy's performance left in this scene the one little bit of Andy Circus you see is uh, the spit flying through the air that there's a shot where Gollum spits and um, we used Andy's spit that happened on the day and we just painted him out but kept the spit we also wanted to show here that there's almost a working workable relationship now emerging between Sam and Gollum and even though they're bickering there's kind of a level of good humor underneath it all yeah, it's a lighter scene. It's a, it's a yeah. scene that actually has something of the spirit of the, of the relationship in the books, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, every, everybody ruined. seems to remember of, of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. They do. It's a great, memorable chapter. Yeah. And it was one that we really wanted to put into the movie. Yeah. We met Andy through the Hubbards, who did the casting in England, and they did a, an initial sweep through the main roles, and they presented Andy on a tape First of all, we saw him and then we met Mr. him. Frodo? Looking mainly for the voice of Gollum at that stage. We were, we? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember the tape was memorable because he was sort of slathering and spitting all over the camera and, you know, yeah. he, he went for it in a way that nobody else did. Yeah, uh, yeah. They were kind of like radio-type voices there. And then there was Andy who was like just completely manic. Immediately he had the kind of energy that 
you felt the character needed. Well, what was interesting about that performance in the audition is that we were videotaping the audition even though we were just looking for the voice. What was compelling was actually seeing what he was doing. Mm. It wasn't just the voice he was using, it was actually seeing the expressions on his face. Because I remember it was a pretty rough, bad quality video that we ended up with, but I remember coming back to New Zealand and having the first kind of golem conversations with Weta. This is long before we started shooting, and I remember dragging the Andy Circus tape in to show them and it wasn't just like, listen to this, this is the voice that we want to use. It was actually look at what he's doing, because what he's doing is really interesting. And I remember using Andy's audition tape as an example for Weta of where Gollum might go visually. Mm. And so the concept of actually using Andy to be driving the visual performance was something that just naturally evolved simply because he's so good <laughs> at what he was doing, we wanted to use it. He was doing it as a way of conjuring up the voice and what he was doing was so compelling to look at that that's what we wanted to use in the movie. When New Line saw this scene they didn't know who these people were and what they were doing and why they were doing it so we wrote some lines for Gollum to say to explain the plot basically at the request very of the studio. Very bad men. They were very bad men <laughs> and I think yeah. at that, that point New Line nodded and said oh okay we, we get it very really? bad men right bad, good. Bad. Servants of Sauron. Servants of Sauron yes. Mm-hmm. Good, but the Mamakil are obviously having a little cameo appearance here. I, I have to say that the scene that I've been looking forward to doing um, ever since we began the trilogy is the Pelennor Fields battle in Return of the King, where these creatures attack in their full battle mode. We're only seeing them here in a very brief appearance, but in the next movie, Return of the King, they play a great part in one of the... Um, the climaxes of a battle scene. So I'm still looking forward to do. I haven't really started doing that much yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, these are great creatures. This sequence has some new footage that we shot originally um, as part of the Two Towers shoot, and it's a speech that um, Sam's actually thinks these thoughts that in the book, and we gave it to Faramir as a speech. I think it does a remarkable job of addressing some of the criticisms of Tolkien because um, people say that he's racist, people say that he's pro-war. And the words that Faramir says here when he sees the body on the ground, I think, can only have been written by somebody who had first-hand experience of war, as Tolkien had, and despised it. It's the words of a soldier who does not know why he's killing people, does not know why the enemy are supposed to be different to him. And I can just imagine Tolkien in the First World War in the trenches um, wondering just how different the Germans are and why they have to kill the Germans and, and, and why they deserve to be killed and do they want to be killed and are they really evil and, and it is very much the thoughts and, and emotions that I think w- could only come from a soldier who did not like what he was doing. I welcome to the second half of the commentary, hope you've made a cup of tea, gone to the toilet, done whatever you need to do and uh, let's get back into it again. More location shooting in Deer Park Heights in Queenstown. This speech here, Pent Fran and I found in the, the back of the appendices one day and we just were laughing hysterically and then we decided we'd actually chuck it in. But it's a bit of actual information which you can find in the appendices about dwarves. And we decided to give it uh, to Gimli because John Rhys Davies is such a wonderful actor at making this sort of thing work. And it was also a moment to see a, a slightly light, more light-hearted Eowyn, so she's not all grim and dark and icy maiden the whole time. <laughs> 